Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. And we are here in the Condé Nast podcast studios with Mark Erwall, who is a writer for Traveler and other places. Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor for Traveler and the podcast producer. Lale Arikoglu and Ryan Craggs, both of whom are editors for Traveler and both of whom worked on a big cruise package that we put out this month in celebration of it being August and summer weather and people being out on the water and cruising. So maybe a good place to start here, Mark, is with your piece because our package is sort of titled Many Things. There's a very long, complicated title, but basically how to cruise now. And it's a look at where things stand in the industry now, what new developments there have been. And you did a piece that traces the 40-year history of cruising. So maybe give us that overview as a good place for dropping into this. Well, what a lot of people probably don't remember is that well, because they're too young, <laughs> is that this year marks the 40th anniversary of an iconic TV show called The Love Boat. And I'm telling you, that show, that TV show, uh, with Gavin McLeod as Captain Steubing and, you know, the whole rest. Julie, the cruise director. Uh, Julie, mm-hmm. the cruise director. That show did more than anything to make cruising attractive to a general audience. Before that show came out, there was this idea. Cruising was something like, you know, the the transatlantic ocean liner where you would dress in your tuxedo for dinner and you would have high tea at 4 o'clock. It was not exactly the sort of attraction that the average American wanted so to take part of. It wasn't fun. It sounds like you're basically saying cruising was really stuffy and not fun. At least that was the reputation going, you know, when you're looking at 40 years ago. And in fact, cruising, modern cruising as we know it today, probably started in the late 50s, early 60s, where people would just go on a cruise to relax, to have fun, to go to some, some great islands or other cool destinations, neat ports or what have you. But that show... The Love Boat, I'm telling you, did more than anything to popularize that with the mass of American travelers. Was that something that the industry was behind, or, or were they involved in it in any kind of way? 100%. In fact, Princess Cruises, well, at first, they were a little bit reluctant to uh, link hands with the TV show, but they quickly understood the power of this program. And you'll remember that it was the Pacific Princess was the cruise ship mm-hmm. that, you know, where all of this took place. And so it was like a glorified commercial for Princess Cruises every year. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it, it didn't take Princess very long to realize this is going to really help us market cruising as a popular destination for, for the average traveler. Was there an instant uptick? Was it, was it instantaneous that once the Love Boat was a primetime family mega hit, did the cruise industry see the impact? Well, it wasn't immediate, no. Uh, but there has been a gradual uptick. The solid figures that I've been able to find go back to about 1995. And from 1995 to today, every year the number of cruise travelers has increased every single year since 1995. Now, I'm not going to attribute all of that to the love boat, of course, but but the fact that if you come back from a cruise and you tell your next door neighbor, we had a great time, you know, we loved the we loved the food, we loved the destinations, that in itself helps generate more travel. It's an exponential growth. I mean, I think one part of that what Mark's talking about too is the sort of word of mouth marketing to it is it seems very accessible to be able to go somewhere exotic. You know, you don't have to plan everything out yourself. 
you say, I want to spend X amount of money, and then you'll get on the boat. Like you'll fly to a place, you'll get on the boat, and then they'll take you to two of the other destinations that you want to visit, where, you know, basically you're getting to shut off your brain for five, seven days, however long your cruise actually lasts without having to say, oh, we have to be to this place like on Tuesday at this time and X, Y, and Z, like they tell you, they lay out the itinerary for you. Oh, and they've structured. They've jumped on that too, the cruise industry that, you you know, see five different uh, destinations, but unpack only once. You know, they've really glommed onto the fact that that's a very attractive component of traveling. I just got back from a trip, it was a road trip to Scotland. And you know we we went uh, we went to Edinburgh we went up to Inverness we went to Aberdeen and you know it was checking into a new place and unpacking each cruising you don't have to do that you put everything into the drawers you're good for the entire week or ten days you see I think Ryan's point is very interesting because when American hotels started to take over the world after World War II especially with Conrad Hilton their value proposition was. A bubble of America in which you can live safely and comfortably and have all the things you're used to in an exotic location. So the hotel wasn't supposed to reflect the place. It was to enable someone maybe a little less ready to adventure to go somewhere. And I think cruise ships have inherited that mantle where there is a way to go to exotic places but retreat to somewhere that's more familiar at night, which makes total sense as a business model. And that strikes me as, okay, there seem like there are different versions of cruising, right? And one of the things that you're talking about, Mark, is like cruising had evolved from the sort of Cunard and White Star version. And now then we got the princess and and celebrity and and the mass market phase, right? Where it's like the Hiltonization of cruising, where we're turning it into a thing that has a little bit of both, right? Accessibility, but also protection or or safety and structure that are really um, helpful for going to another place. But now I feel like the industry is struggling with a different thing, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, which is travelers who are looking for a less mediated experience, who are looking to actually not be completely insulated from going to another kind of place. How is the industry changing these days in order to cater to that new, different market? One of the things to consider is also the places that the cruises are going to. There are the traditional ports. I was reading last week that the three most popular cruise ports are all in Florida. But beyond that, you can probably rattle if you if you work in this industry like even for probably 10 minutes, you can figure out what the other popular cruise ports end up being, you know, going to Barcelona and going to places like that where it's just these very Venice. Yeah, these very well-known ports. But now they're starting to go other places, you know, going into Southeast Asia for example, because, you know, I don't think the average American would consider, "Oh, I'm going to hop on a boat and then I'm going to go to, you know, Myanmar." Right. It's it's just a different experience. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that there is this dichotomy that is it's increasing as far as I can tell every day in the cruise industry where you have the bigger and bigger and bigger ships right um, some of them have 30-foot drafts that is you know their hulls go down 30 feet below the surface so there's a limited number of places where these ships can go right and you're gonna find them going to the places where cruise ships have always gone the Mediterranean the Caribbean yeah. uh, the west coast of Mexico on the other hand, you have these very high-end, some call them six-star cruise ships, uh, where the number of passengers is somewhere between 400 and 1,200, as opposed to, let's say, 2,500 and 5,000. And these ships, because of their small size, just as you said, Ryan, they can go to little Vietnamese and Cambodian ports, little ports in Central America where a cruise, big cruise ship could never go. 
so it's almost counterintuitive that these ships that are more expensive, that are attracting the passengers who are spending lots and lots of money, are going to these more remote, adventurous destinations. Well, I think they're also being more inventive with their shore excursions as well. Right. You now have opportunities, you know, when you're in port, a chef from the ship or someone who's local to that port will take you food shopping and you can pick your own food to then be prepared for you when you're back on the ship or you'll go I was reading about one opportunity on a particular ship where you docked and then you could go truffle hunting and there's mm -hmm. all these very unique experiences that I feel like travelers across the board whether you're like an Airbnb person or you're looking for a high-end hotel or you want to go on a cruise more and more people are wanting these unique, hard-to-find experiences, and I think cruise ships are now having to But, Lola, I would that. say, I love your point about that, and uh, there's a story that I did that's part of the package about Cruising 101, and I think one of the things, if people are resistant to cruising and that sense of sort of being disembarked en masse to go and sightsee in a big bus, you can use standalone companies and pick shore excursions yourself. You do not have to take the cruise ship's shore excursions. And there are companies like Shore Trips and Tours by Locals that will guarantee that you'll be back by the time your ship leaves. So there's no risk. You're not being too independent. But I think it's really good to remember you can use as much or as little as the cruise ship's resource as you want, depending on how appealing it is. Yeah, I want to throw in a caveat right there. Uh, unless you're going on a shore excursion that is actually endorsed by the cruise ship, there is no guarantee that, no, no, that but if these you're companies, But these companies, will, the, these companies do guarantee to be back, so that's why I would pull them out. So I would recommend shore trips and tours by locals. You don't want to grab any old one, but those two companies um, guarantee you or they will make it right. So it is a, it's, it's a much safer thing to do. We'll go with a reputable yeah, company either exactly. way. Right, right. Like Don't just grab some guy off the dock and say, hey, can you show me around? But I do think this sort of inversion, whereas on the one hand you've got – the marketing of the boat and the boat experience as a controlled, protected environment where things are structured, where the trip is planned out for you, where you don't really have to think about anything and things are taken care of, versus this sort of um, other way of traveling, which is to say, I actually don't want all of that. I want to be getting off the boat and going to a place. And you've seen even in the marketing, it seems like you know, it's less about the boat, less about being on the boat, which I think is the way it used to be. And that's what the love boat is all about, right? Like, it's how great the boat is. You don't go to the port, really. You know, it's like when the Bradys went to Hawaii. It's the special <laughs> occasion. <laughs> it is my era. Um, but it's the marketing of the destination, and it's the marketing of the experience that you can have in the destination. And the boat is just a nice way of getting there, you know, in a, to a certain extent. Well, I think uh, speaking to the experience that idea in itself there's the port and shore experience but then also the boat experience because you know if cruises weren't making so much money they wouldn't keep building bigger boats yeah. and offering <laughs> all sorts of new different excursions and a prime example is um the ritz carlton they're launching their own cruise line so to know that a hotelier is getting into that that's a big difference as opposed to it being this other like subsection of saying like oh this is like the airbnb 
boat for people or this right. is like this you know i mean it's like it is a known hotel brand that is getting into this game itself because but it's looking at it as a growth industry i've right. talked about this before i'm so sad my favorite cruise i've ever taken was a thing called easy cruise which was an offshoot of easy jet which operated in the caribbean for two or three years and you were able to spend a minimum of two nights but a as long as you wanted, ricocheting around the islands, and it acted essentially like a convenient way of island hopping, like a URL pass. And those brand extensions, it's interesting to think about how, and I'm so sad Easy Cruise didn't work, I think because it was more configured for the way Europeans tend to travel versus the way Americans travel. But I, I, I it was phenomenal. <laughs> the, uh, the idea that a ship itself is a just simply a mode of getting from point A to point B. I see that more of the lux smaller luxury cruises. Mm -hmm. But the ships themselves are increasingly becoming the destination. Royal Caribbean is is doing this in a big way. Um, uh, many of the uh, of the big cruise lines are with zip lines, with with on water, the boat. with on the boats, with water parks, with these cantilevered um, uh, observation towers that jut out 300 feet above and uh, the ship and over the ocean. Uh, there is so much to do on these ships that, to an extent, the destinations themselves almost become superfluous because some people don't even get off the ship when they go into port. Oh, that makes me sad. I, it makes me sad, too. I'm just saying that this is a trend that we're seeing. Yeah. These can be really great multi-generational vacation spots because of what you're talking about, which is that there are so many different experiences on the ship itself that kind of everybody can be happy so if you're a foodie, there can be really good food. If you've got kids, they can play on the slides or send them down the zip line. Why not? Um, <laughs> keep them there. Keep them, yeah, throw them on the zip line and just keep them going back and forth, back and forth. We've talked about this before, too. There are even some of these bigger ships that have sort of smaller luxury cabins that they've set aside that if you are into a more kind of luxe experience and you want to be more isolated and away from the grandparents and the kids, you can do that as well, all on the same boat. So it does seem like there are, the industry itself is kind of spreading in multiple directions to cater to these different consumer desires. Just jumping in on what you said about the multi-generational aspect of cruising. Last year, we took my father-in-law, who's 90 years old. I asked him, I said, Chet, what would you like to do uh, You know that you haven't done? He goes, yeah, I'd really like to go on a, a cruise to Alaska. We said, seriously? You're 90 years old. This is the first time you've mentioned it? So we did. We got the whole family. It was, it was grandkids. It was parents. It was my father-in-law. I'm telling you, it was the best way of traveling with a multi-generational group because what we did was this. We all went our own way during the daytime. But then at 5 o'clock, we would sort of all get together. The adults would have a cocktail before dinner, uh, decide which restaurant we were going to go to, spent the rest of the night together. It was fabulous. It's a great, great option if you're traveling with a big group of family in different ages because there's a lot of different things for those different age groups to do. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Mark, what other advice do you have for people who are new to the cruise game? I would say it was interesting because I talk to a lot of people about kind of newbie cruising, and I love cruises. I'm completely unabashed. I love everything about them, small, big, anything, just bring it on. My side would always give people is 
It's easy to think when you first start cruising you should take a three-day cruise because that's the sampler. But actually what you really need is a seven-day cruise because you need till about day five to kind of click into cruise mode. So it's much better. <laughs> what is cruise mode? Yes. <laughs> it is the reminder that unlike your day-to-day -day life, your schedule is much more in your control and you can choose whether to have anything in your schedule or, or nothing. And it takes you a while to realize that that's okay. Um, and so I would very much encourage people to do seven days. And I would also encourage people to make sure that you have at least two sea days. You'll normally have one sea day. Before you take a cruise, and this is what I thought the first time before I took it, I thought, who wants to be at sea? Why would you be at sea? I thought we were supposed to go places. And actually, those sea days, at least a couple of sea days, are sometimes the most beautiful experience. And sea days are days between ports. Ports. You're doing nothing other than be on the, be on the ship. Whatever, whether it's a small or a large one, they're really amazing. And the, when I took the transatlantic QM2, it was just sea days because there's nothing in the way. And that was super special because it liberates you. So I'd give it. I would. I would very much say that. And I. I do. I agree. I think it's an amazing multi generational. I think it's the best. I would say with teenagers. I think it's the perfect way. If you have children who are not quite old enough to go on vacation on their own, but still hate being with you, they can be on the ship. Your son is not quite that old yet. Oh, he's getting. He's getting very close. Yeah. Um, you can release him for the day without any worry. So it's a great teenager trip because they have autonomy without you stressing out. What do you say to somebody like Lale who's a cruise skeptic? Why are you a cruise skeptic, Lale? Tell us why you're a cruise skeptic. I've never been on one. The prospect of being on a large ship surrounded by possibly thousands of people trapped terrifies me. There are and also sharks. Are sharks I, everywhere. Sharks over, people. sharks over people. Sharks over people. Um, you know you live in New York, right? You work in an I office. know. That's why exactly I feel like this. Look at her. She's anxious right now. <laughs> I have to get the you A train home after this. You can't see how anxious she looks. But she is palpably anxious, yes. And I think also just, you know, to your point saying that you get used to having control over your schedule. The way I see a cruise is I don't have enough control over my own trip. Like, for me, some of the most exciting parts of travel is hauling your stuff from one place to the next and checking in and not knowing what to expect. And sometimes it goes wrong and sometimes it's a brilliant surprise. And to me, a cruise takes away the unpredictability of travel. Would you say I'm wrong? No, but if you took a cruise, if you if you were forced, you know, sort of shanghaied onto a cruise, <laughs> what destination appeals most? Um, probably somewhere that I couldn't get to any other way. So these... One of our writers recently wrote about a cruise she took to the North Pole. So you know, yeah. that's something I'm never going to be able to really organize myself. I'm a five foot three woman. <laughs> Don't do well in extreme, <laughs> extreme settings. No, and to me, that would be appealing to be able to see wildlife that I wouldn't be able to see anywhere else and landscapes that pretty inaccessible. That sounds incredible. You see, I think you're making a really good point. And I think you're pointing out, as we talked about the size of ships, we're also talking about how calling things cruises is a bit like saying all fast food is McDonald's or all pizzas are margaritas. These are vacations you get on a boat to go to. 
they involve the ocean. And that's kind of all they have or, in common. Or, or a river. Or a river. That's right. true. Yeah. So yes. you need some water to float over. And other <laughs> than that, they're really different. And I'd be curious whether the listeners have these perspectives, whether people have resisted cruises and been persuaded or whether they've taken them and regretted them. Because I think there is a sort of hesitancy before people go for the first time. The comment that I've heard most from people who are reluctant to travel is that they're afraid that they would be bored. I've also heard people say, I don't want to be out in the middle of the ocean where I have absolutely no control over what's going on. For those people, I can tell you there's something called SOLAS, the Safety of Life at Sea. It's a convention, international convention. It came about following two Oh, there's a real thing. There's a real thing. It sounds like Safety of Life at Sea. It came about directly because of the Titanic sinking in 1914. 1912. Thank you. 1912. Solus came about in 1914, two years later. And it has to do with everything to do with safety. For example, lifeboats, how many are there? Uh, Life vests, the fact that on your first day you actually have to go through a lifeboat drill. All of these things are prescribed for for every passenger, every ship who is a member of this convention, which basically covers every country on Earth. The safety factor is probably not going to be, shouldn't be your number one concern. Boredom, which I would say might be number two, is also really not a factor. With the number of ports that you're going to be going to, with the amount of activities on the ship, literally you could not do everything that was scheduled for you. But let me join forces with Lale and just ask the question back for a moment. Off, go on, like, back her off. Well, <laughs> I just like as a person who is uh, characterologically allergic to enforced fun. Yes. Or yes. like me too, you know, me too. Like, I, I, I was getting you, one I know. You said the word activities <clears throat> and I was like strange yeah. trivial. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But but you but Brad, can I just say yes. you and I share this where I just I don't do classes at the gym. I don't yeah. like wearing uniforms because yeah. I it means I have to join in. I don't like forced fun. Right, right. I don't like a cruise director shouting at me going, have fun now because yes. I will do the reverse just to prove them wrong. <laughs> yes. Agreed. And I still love cruises. Okay. So for those people, for, for people who I are... Because I know, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. All, We've talked about this before. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, no, and that's that's a great point. No classes at the gym. Like, I just imagine, oh. like, people jumping up and down. I'm like, ah, <laughs> I'll be out back hiding under a chair. I'll do it on my book. own. Leave me alone. Yes. I don't want to talk to you. Yes. <laughs> Made everybody mad. I'll read a book at dinner. What the hell with you. Um, oh, a little throwback, though. Yes, throwback, yes. Uh, oh, all the comments. So for people like us... You know, I think your larger message is there's a cruise for everybody. What kinds of things is the industry doing these days to cater to people who are maybe not Vegas types, not people who are going for the sort of big, fun, casino-ish, showtime kinds of things? What if you don't like you know, 300 table dinners, you're more into a smaller place. If the hotel for you is a boutique hotel, when I go to stay in another city, I'm generally not staying at a Ritz-Carlton or, or a Hilton. I'm, I'm generally, no offense to those, I think those are great places, but I'm more likely to stay at a smaller hotel, you know, that's a neighborhood focused or something like that. What are the cruises for people like me? Well, I mean, let's go to food first off, okay? Yeah. Okay. Because this is obviously used to be that the big thing about cruises was how much food they give you, the yeah. midnight buffets, the buffet. and yeah. you know, just nonstop all you can eat. That's old hat. That doesn't apply anymore. Certainly, you can eat as much as you want, but that's not the emphasis. In fact, they have some of the top chefs 
you know, anywhere on Earth are now creating the menus for some of the uh, some of the crews. Thomas Keller of Per Se in the French Laundry in, in Napa. He's with Seaborn. He has his own restaurants on the ship. It's to the point where not only does he create the menus, but he actually tells the cruise ship which purveyors they have to use. I mean, he says, you got to get your ham from these guys, your cheese from those guys, your bread from and these guys. And is that guys. based on ports of call? All of, the, all of the goods are shipped in or flown in. It's hugely expensive, which is one of the reasons why Seaborn is a little more expensive than, yeah. let's say, Carnival. Yeah. Uh, Jacques Papin, uh, uh, Guy Fieri, uh, uh, Jamie Oliver, all of these guys are creating specialty restaurants, special menus for the cruise ships. Now, you don't have to go to them if you don't want to, but the fact is that if you want a more individualized approach to how you're going to be eating your meals every day, it's there for you. So that's just one of the things for people who want a little more individualized approach to cruising. And may I, may I make a suggestion that's even more about not having to participate? Yes. Because this appeals to me. <laughs> yes. A lot of the cruise ships have cruise ships within the cruise ship. So the Yacht Club on MSC or the Haven on Norwegian, where you are essentially in a VIP room, which I love. I just love the idea of being in a VIP room, let alone the fact that it also means I don't have to interact with people and you can use some of the assets of the ship but you are also having a little bit of a sanctuary and I think that's the best of both worlds sign me up yeah. alright I'm, I'm going to go in the opposite direction I loved the cruise on the Seaborn that I just recently did and they had something called the retreat which is on the top deck and you have your own little cabana there's a little pool up there I got a massage up there I mean it was very comfortable but there were only three other cabanas full. I felt like I was so apart from everything else that was oh, happening. That's ideal. Yeah. Well, how right. amazing. Okay, there's a reason. Why, the okay, downside? there's a reason why they do it because some people are going to like it. I have to say though that I just would rather have been with more of the people on the ship to I see what was going on. <laughs> I went to a class at the gym. I'm not looking for more people to sit at the pool with me. Yes. I want less. Yeah. I'm going to try and get down really early to get the best lounger, and then I'm going to make the other two couples feel really uncomfortable so that eventually it's just my pool. <laughs> but then again, that's just me. What are the rules around things like Eating and drinking. You said you can eat all you want, and I know there's this lore about the all-you-can-eat buffet and, and, you know, that kind of thing. But these days, what kind of packages can people actually buy when they're on these ships? Well, the smaller ships are very much all-inclusive. Not 100% in all cases, but when, you, when you're talking about Regent Seven Seas and Seabourn and uh, Silver Sea and Wind that, star, that like, yeah, and that level, mm-hmm. that deluxe level, you pay your fare and you pretty much get whatever you want. Open bar, in some cases, the shore excursions are included. If you want to go to a specialty restaurant on the ship, it's included. When you go to the more mass market uh, cruise ships, the larger ones, the, the, you know, for Princess and NCL and Royal Caribbean, all good lines. I'm not saying anything negative about it. But there you're going to be paying your fare for you're, – you're going to get your cabin. Right. And if you want something more than that, for example, you could buy a drinks package. Let's okay. put it that way. Okay. Where all your booze would be covered for an extra you know, $200, $250, whatever it is for the, for the week five. long. Uh, but that might be, depending on how much you like to drink, that might be a cheaper way of getting around than just paying 
for each drink at you know to the bartender. So there are packages that you can buy that make it uh, you know you choose what you want, what you don't want. Yeah. You mentioned you know paying as you go at the bar, and immediately I was envisioning sort of how horrified people you know travel on a cruise could be when met with their bill mm-hmm. at the end of the trip. What are some tips you could give to avoid a horrifying piece yeah, well, of paper I, when you check out? Look, I mean, when it comes to not being surprised, there's only one one solution, and that's to do your research beforehand. Yeah. There's no there's no way around it. All of your questions are going to be answered if you just do a little bit of research. I would go on to some of the message boards where people are talking about, hey, I went on this cruise ship and I was surprised about this and then see the responses from other people. The fact is, though, most of the costs of a cruise ship are pretty well laid out for you by the cruise line. The last thing the cruise line wants is to have a, you know, a, a, an upset passenger at the end of a cruise saying, I didn't know I was going to be charged for that. I didn't know this was that much. That's not good for anybody. You're going to have all of the charges pretty much laid out for you. Uh, there are some things that are under your uh, your own discretion, like tipping, for example. Who do you tip? How much do you tip? Uh, most cruise lines will have a section on their website that says, well, most people will give this person $5 a day you know, for the, for the, or $10 or whatever it may be. You add that up, and it could be a significant amount of money, but at least you know about it beforehand. But if you're paying as you go, tip your bartender like you would in any bar, <laughs> and you'll probably find your check at the end reflects how generous you were when you tipped. You can even, in all inclusives, tipping is magic. Well, and to speak to Mark's point previously, too, the spirit airlines of the cruise industry doesn't exist yet. I hope that that doesn't really happen. You're right, absolutely. But but no, it's something it to take an easy in. cruise. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, kind I, of. I guess, yeah. But but spirit, you're, that's a really great observation, actually. You know, it's everything is turning into a commodity in the airline industry. Yeah. You know, your bag, your seat, <laughs> soon the armrests, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's thinking about all of those things can add up, and th- those are things that we have ingrained in us to have as an expectation included in what you're already paying for. So as Mark was saying, everything is pretty explicitly laid out in terms of what you get for the money that you're paying. I know you may think, you know what, I'll save my money on the drinks, I'll just put a lot of vodka in my bag. (laughs) They do x-ray your bag, and you will be allowed probably one bottle on board, but unfortunately you can't kind of offset the bar bill by skimping on your skivvies and bringing a lot of booze, (laughs) because they'll catch. It's funny though, some some of the cruise lines are very liberal about how much you can bring on board. Others are very, very tough, and you know they'll confiscate it, give it back to you on your last day <laughs> before you leave. <laughs> what are some things that we're most excited about in terms of developments in the industry this year? More so next year, just because of the, the biggest ship ever is launching. The Symphony of the Seas is launching in April, so it's just another. How big is the biggest ship? It will have 6,870 passengers. Yeah, so that's about 1,000 more than the current biggest uh, ship, which I have to say just doesn't interest me at all. I mean, I, I, I don't see the purpose at a certain point. You've gotten, uh, you've gotten big. Okay, you can carry a lot of passengers. If you're offering them something more that they couldn't get on a smaller ship simply because of the increased size, okay, let's emphasize that, that there's more to do. There are more restaurants, there are more activities, there are more 
swimming pools. It has pools. three zip lines instead of one. <laughs> three zip lines three instead children, of one. Three children, three yeah. zip lines. But this trend of just simply putting out bigger and bigger ships for its own sake, I'm at a loss as to see what the attraction is. Well, for them, it's a, it's an economy of scale, right? Absolutely. So that no, makes sense for them. Oh, but there's for no the... question. And, and, and if they said, oh, you know, because now we're carrying 6,500 passengers, therefore you're going to be paying 30% right, less. Right, right. You know, but they don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Or if they do, it's, it's, they're certainly not making that direct connection. But do you think that there's, to your point, Ryan, like does the consumer look at that and say, like, I want to travel on the biggest ship in the world? I don't think that it necessarily affects the consumer on that end. It's more, to me, a business-focused decision because they can get more people on a bigger ship. But I don't think you would probably have a discernible difference for you as a traveler if there are 5,000 people on a ship or if there's 6,000 people on a ship. You're just going to notice there's a ton of people on this ship. Many people. Yeah, exactly. At some point, you're not going to you know you're not going to look off into the distance and see everybody else who's you know on this cruise alongside you. You're going to see maybe that there are certain larger amenities and a few more things to do, but Again, unless you're going to be on that boat for three weeks, a month, whatever, excuse me, ship. If you're going to be on the <laughs> ship for three weeks or a month or something, you're, you're not going to be able to exhaust all of your options in five, seven days, whatever it is that you'll actually be on that ship. So realistically, I don't think it's going to really affect the average person getting on the ship. Also, I have to say, I'm not an artist, I'm not an architect, but I do have an aesthetic sensibility. And when I look at these really big ships... They just look awkward. You know, you have the the basic structure of the ship, you know, the hull, and then you've got what looks like a big old Lego building that just stacks up, you know, so high that it looks like the whole ship should tip over. Now, it won't. Don't, I'm not saying it would. Of course, it won't. But Are it you sure? I'm positive, but it doesn't look pretty. It doesn't look Lale. handsome. It's not I'm the not Queen Mary, it. you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to convince you by the end. We're going to be like, so... No, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to these small river boats. And I think so exactly. Yeah. So we, we, you see, you, I, the think you're, I think you're softening ship. slightly. Can I tell you? I, I just, don't want the David Foster Wallace cruise. That's what I, that's what I don't want to go on. But the river idea is great. We didn't really talk about river cruises. Talk about river yeah. cruises? I was just recently... We're not going to unplug your mic. Okay. No, I was in Vietnam and Cambodia on a small cruise ship, the... Scenic Spirit. Scenic is a cruise line based in Australia, uh, very high end. They tend to go to places that most other cruise lines don't go to. And, you know, there were only what, maybe 80 passengers on this, so mm-hmm. on this cruise ship. So you pretty much got to know everybody on a first name basis by the third day, which can be good or not so good depending on your point of view. In this particular case, it was great because these people were all well off in the sense that this was a crew, you know, an expensive cruise, mm. and they had worked hard for you know what they had earned, and uh, they were inquisitive, intelligent. There, there were seventy-year-old people taking these ox cart rides through these rutted streets. It was a really dynamic group of people, and you can't go there on a big you know, 500 or 1,000 passenger cruise ship. So these river cruises are something really, really special, especially when you get out into the hinterlands, like in South America, in Southeast Asia, in Africa. 
There's even one that goes in the Chobe River where you can do a sort of a, a river safari, which is, is crazy, you know. But there's, so there's a lot more than just going to the Caribbean on a cruise ship. But I would also say one of the, the big ship stuff that I think is very – having been on plenty of big ships, which I love – one of the biggest problems when you travel is finding each other because it's so large and cell phone service is very spotty. And Princess is bringing in what is an industry first and is going to ricochet throughout most of the major operators, partly because they're owned by three, three or four big companies. But Princess's Ocean Medallion will not only allow you to open your door, your stateroom door, with that wristband. It looks a bit like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit with that wristband, but it will allow you to pay for things. You can locate people on the ship. I'm surprised so, Disney didn't get there first. <laughs> I agree that's how with like, you. Disney World works. They are introducing this, and it's going to make... They're going to integrate it into every cruise ship service, partly to sell you more, but also I love the fact because I've had problems finding people on the ship. And that, to me, is a brilliant, and it's coming in this fall. Um, those kind of things I think are super clever, and I'm curious to see how other lines innovate in the way they use them. Do they have apps for ships in the way, again, I'm just jumping off the Disney World idea, right? Like you go to Disney World these days and there's an app that will tell mm -hmm. you what the wait times are at all the different rides. They'll tell you where to find food. They'll tell you all these sort of things about the park. But it's, it occurs to me that navigating a ship like of the size that you're talking about, there could be similar questions that you might want to answer. Is there a table that I can get at that restaurant? Is now a good time to go to the bar? Can I go to the dance thing or whatever? None of the, I don't know about you guys. I mean, you can, none of the apps I've seen have been quite there yet. They're all trying to use an app on your phone to turn your smartphone into a useful component. But none of the ones I've seen have managed to say, oh, the wait at that restaurant is 20 minutes, have give you meaningful information. They're really just trying to sell you, oh, you should sign up for this excursion. And I don't think that is necessarily a value-add. Yeah. It also depends on where you're traveling because in some places the uh, the Wi-Fi is simply not going to be strong enough to power these apps. Uh, when I was in Vietnam and Cambodia on this uh, scenic cruise, I could get to a web page, but I, for example, I couldn't download something. I couldn't uh, send pictures to Instagram. It was it was simply wow. that week. And, that week. Yeah, it was that week. So I, I didn't care that much, but to, to have a, that kind of weakness in your Wi-Fi and to power an app, so it's going to depend on where you're traveling as well as the advancement of the actual technology. You would think at some point they couldn't build bigger ships. I don't know when that day is going to come, yeah. but you know, it is in some ways a bit of an arms race. It's not necessarily just about making the ships themselves bigger. How many other superlatives end up being left of things that you can improve you know, on the ships themselves? Like MSC is doing this 119-day cruise that they're launching mm -hmm. in like 18 months, which is just crazy. You know, it's four months and it goes to something like 32 different countries which I just couldn't even begin to imagine that. But again, you're just thinking in terms of the superlatives, like what can they do in terms of the itinerary? What can they do in terms of the size of the ship itself? But remember, and it's worth remembering, if you are someone who's looking to cruise with peers, in general, cruises that are over two weeks long tend to be for people who have less pressure on their vacation days. If you can go so for four months, that is if an you understatement. Can go for four months, you will normally be traveling with an older traveler. Yeah. So anything below two weeks is has an ability to be a sort of prime time family, a younger traveler over two weeks. 
it is a totally lovely experience, but remember that's sort of the demarcation point and it pivots from a sort of a, you know, a silver surfer over two weeks to more of a sort of family travel. Yeah, if you're going <laughs> for three days in March into the Caribbean, you should probably know what kind of thing you're getting yourself into. Have you been on that cruise? <laughs> I have you, not. You said that with a sort of no, slightly no, no, guilty but I, but I did go to college. <laughs> <laughs> what else are we excited? Uh, maybe not on the superlative side. Is there any? Are there any innovations that are really intriguing or that we're looking forward to trying out? Well, this is not brand new, but the cruise cabins for single travelers. Because as Mark Elwood pointed out, Sometimes you would actually have to pay more money as a single traveler than you would if you were paying half of a two-person cabin fare. Uh, For example, they would charge you a 75% supplement as a single traveler. That's because you're taking up the room for two people, but there's only one fare. But a lot of cruise lines, I think NCL was the first one, I believe. I may have that wrong, but I believe they were the yeah, first w- ones to come out with these cabins. And they're slightly smaller than a two-person cabin. But nonetheless, you're only paying half the price of the two-person cabin. So it becomes affordable. And they have uh, tables at the restaurants for single travelers. They have events, meet and greets, and what have you for single travelers. So it's actually- you get a little mingling action well, going on there? You know, like it, and those of you who haven't listened to the Solo to Travel podcast- Tinder work on the- <laughs> Brad and I did, as Brad was talking about, you wearing the cape of Elizabeth Gilbert. We did talk about, we talked <laughs> about right. the single cabins, and please listen to that in kind of concert to this, and it'll give you a little different perspective. Yeah, yeah I mean, look, if you want, if you want to pay more, for as, as a single traveler to have a double cabin, go ahead. But at least it's an option. I think that's one of the nice things about cruising more and more is that you're given options. So this isn't an innovation, but it's a cruise trend that I feel like we should talk about, which is Cuba. Uh-huh. You know, after travel restrictions were eased, all these cruise lines signed up to start going there. And now the future of how we can travel to Cuba from the States is a little hazier again. What does this mean? Are they going to keep taking travelers there? And- have the cruise lines adjusted? Have they announced anything in terms of how their itineraries will be impacted? Or did you get any information from them? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I don't know, Ryan. I don't think you're... it's been decided yet, right? It mm. seems very up in the air. It yeah. is very up in the yeah. air. There are still some cruise lines that are saying, you, you join us in Florida, we'll take you over to, to Cuba. Yep. And you say to yourself, really? How are you going to do that in this current political environment? I'm not sure. There is no clear-cut sense of how you as a traveler are going to be able to do this or not. And I think that's a problem that the, the CLIA is, by the way, we, we haven't mentioned CLIA, Cruise Lines International Association is the umbrella organization that most of the major cruise lines belong to. They do all of the marketing, all of the public relations for cruising in general. I would love to see them come out and either take a stance on the, the current political climate or at the very least make it well known. I mean, look, we're all journalists in this room. Nobody's come to me and said, or apparently to anybody else in this room, about here is the current status on what it's like to cruise or not to cruise to Cuba. This has been the problem with Cuba for the last two or three years, right? It's been changing a lot since, I guess, since 2010 um, it was. And, you know, I don't think there's a definitive answer. It's been difficult to get definitive travel information for Cuba for a long time. 
we've done a podcast about traveling to Cuba. It's now maybe out of date. I, we don't really know. I think for the individual traveler, I think there are a couple things. One is do your research because it is changing frequently and the administration could come out with new rules or new regulations, or they could enforce rules and regulations that are in place now, but that are mostly not enforced, which is one of the things that we talked about. The other thing that I think is true is that there's pressure from the other direction too, which is mostly not spoken about and mostly not really even considered. It's not part of the dialogue. The pressure that those cruise ships put on Havana when they pull into the harbor, which, you know, again, nobody's going to talk about Havana. Cuba is just sort of dealing with that because that's the trajectory that they're on. But I think I said this before, if you go and you visit Havana and you see those giant, giant ships right down in uh, the old part of the city, disgorging tons and tons of people, there are thousands of people kind of rolling off those ships into a city that really is not prepared from an infrastructure perspective to have that many people doing that many things in that old a part of town that is that it, it has not been fully restored and restructured. The process of restoration is in progress. They need the money from the travelers in order to complete that. So there's this so sort to, of I was going to say, could, so if, if there are any travel specialists listening who have who've dug much deeper into this, please tweet at us. Tell us what's going on. If any of you are looking into buying trips to Cuba, let us know what you're finding. Or if you've had that experience of taking a cruise to Cuba, would you do it again? Because none of us have done that cruise the last time you went, Brad, you didn't cruise. No, no. I'd be really curious to have some listeners give us their feedback. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great topic because this scenario can play out not just in Cuba, but in hundreds of port cities around the world. They don't necessarily have the infrastructure in place to support, you know, five ships coming in every day with, you know, 1,000, 5,000 people coming off these ships, what have you. And yet they make so much money in the short term that the long-term drawbacks to this uh, are sort of shunted aside. As responsible travelers, it's something uh, – certainly I, I, I feel this. I'm sure everyone in this room feels this, that you know, we're going into this little tiny port. Do these people – uh, are, are they doing something specifically for us that they wouldn't do normally? And how does that disrupt their lives for better or worse? I don't know. You know, being a responsible traveler carries, you know, a, a lot of weight on our shoulders. Yeah. We, we know that. Yeah. Um, but it, it's something that the cruise industry, I think, probably if there was anything that they could do to make themselves a little more proactive, this would be one of them. How do we assist these destinations? How do we maybe not even go to some of these destinations quite as much based on how our, our – that we're impacting them? Well, some of them, you know, Barcelona being a great example, have started to put limits on the numbers of tourists that can actually come through. And they're not necessarily saying no cruisers, but they're saying, you know, we need to modulate this because of the impact on the local economy. Yeah. Going, just going back to Cuba, one quick second. Another thing to consider there, and obviously I am not a lawyer and I do not work in government, but one thing to consider with trips to Cuba in the first place, it wasn't as if the travel restrictions changing. You know, it did change, but it wasn't as if you couldn't go to Cuba at all. There were, you know, a lot of parameters that would allow you to go to Cuba previously. So you're going on a people to people exchange. So you couldn't just go to Cuba and then go to the beach for a week. Right. But you could go there, you know, if there were medical missions and other sorts of things that like had to be prearranged and those end up having to be approved by the State Department. So, I mean, it is possible, even if the restrictions become tighter, 
that if there are certain exchanges that are set up, it would be possible to still go to Cuba. So it's not as if like that, you know, wall gets like just put up there. I want to ask in parting about a cruise that I literally could not take. And I want to talk about silent rooftop dance parties. Top deck, sorry, dance parties. Can somebody explain to me what's going on there? I, I've never uh, been to one myself. <laughs> silence. <laughs> silence. Yeah. That was the silent, silent commentary upon the silent top deck Why do dance you, what, party. What about what are the elements of this that oh, you're just, is this like a, a rave on a cruise? No, this show? is Wait, this is, is, this, is this is something we cover that's the U by Uniworld river cruises that they've launched that are only for oh, people from age twenty yeah. One to yeah. forty-five. They will not let you on the boat if you don't fall within that age <laughs> right, range. Right, 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 right. This is the, this is like the millennial. <laughs> this cruise. is their millennial yeah, cruise. Yeah, yeah, Can yeah, I go yeah. on By the, the three-month one with the retirees? <laughs> well, own, yeah. I mean, so I'm just this again. This seems like we talked about this in the hotels podcast, which is, you know, these interesting plays to sort of market to millennials. First of all, I don't know how 45-year-olds become millennials, but whatever. (laughs) Um, It's like stretching. We need to include people between 35 and 45 because they have all the money. This strikes me as another one of these kind of like, yes, we're going to do fun social things that millennials love. It sounds like Mm. a bunch of people sat in a boardroom and had like just sort of some sort of diagram that showed like what young people like and yes. the, the young people part of it yes. was yes. silent discos oh, yes. I'm just going to tell you this on deck three the baby boomers are really having a great party so come on down <laughs> well it's you know I think it's it's what it's what both marks here were talking about though before too what what do millennials like what are young people into you get on a ship and you don't have wi-fi or you get on the ship and you can't use your phone to do everything while you're there. You know, you can't navigate everything. And that that is something that they need to consider. Yeah. You know, that's like what so many things that are going on with people who are even younger than me because, you know, I'm getting old enough at the tooth. But that I might not be able to go on that cruise soon. But my point is, those are the things that they need to see is how, how, these, how these customers, potential passengers... How do they live their lives? What are the things that they value specifically? And is it silent dance parties? I mean, I can tell you that's not a thing that I'm doing and I fit in this age range. It's more so, you know, thinking about the connectivity and what things are going on culturally. I don't think it's just to say, what are the kinds of parties that they're doing now? And they've also added, you by Uniworld is now being sold by Contiki, which is really just cheap package vacations for Europeans. So I think the positioning is also very different. It's not necessarily an explorer millennial. It's a... I want to have a package vacation. I want it with a difference. I want it on the water. So it, it is positioned. I don't think it's positioned just to be particularly groundbreaking. I think it's probably a normal cruise with a little kind of interesting frosting all over it. But I mean, Ryan's point, it may be why they started with river cruises is because connectivity is easier to, to, to manage. For sure. Right? For sure. But it sounds like a waterborne version of every rooftop bar that you've been to in Spain. Right? Okay. Brad, you're sounding really old. Anyone who hasn't I'm seen really you not is really now old. picturing <laughs> you as like 75. But I have the voice and of a 13 year old. And you always say we're the same age. So for the record, I, I neither of us is 75. No, no. But I would be not allowed on this boat by a small margin. I would hate to end this podcast on th- that note because the fact is... What? Cru- silent rooftop dance no, party? Because, because cruising is a... F- I, look, I, I have probably done, I guess, about 25 cruises, uh, maybe about seven or eight different bodies of water around the world. 
And it is a fabulous way of exploring some of the hidden corners of the world that you would never see otherwise. So you don't have to worry about the midnight buffet or the ice cream machines or the the top deck uh, dancing or what have, disco, whatever it is. This presents an option for you to see some parts of the world that you might never see otherwise in relative comfort at a price that isn't too bad at all. In fact, maybe it's better than doing it on your own. Lale, you convinced? I mean, that part convinces me. <laughs> if, you can, if you can find something that gives me that and, like, none of the other stuff, but maybe, like, that James Beard food mm-hmm. collection that's launched. So why doesn't, can we not get listeners to tweet suggestions to Lale of where they would send her? Yes, what please. cruise ships that she should try, and then we'll send you on that cruise ship and you can report back. Great. Yeah. Content budget. just one (laughs) just one Uh, okay thanks to all of you for participating today Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast we are on iTunes we are on SoundCloud visit us at cntraveler.com and you can read all of these stories that we've been talking about at cntraveler.com slash how to cruise now with hyphens instead of spaces because that's how we do it on the internet we are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. And please do tweet at us. Um, there's been lively Twitter activity, lively reviews activity, lots of people with lots of feels about the things that we've been talking about. Solo travel um, got a lot of reaction from people, which was fun. And we love it. Even if you hate, even if you hate what we're doing, tell us why we could do it better. Yeah. It's, it's okay to, to find us irritating, as some people have. Yes. I Bring mean, the if hate. You, yeah. If you think I suck, that's fine. Just tell <laughs> me. Just yeah. tell me. Yeah. It's, it's, Wouldn't be the first time I've been no, told you're good. Yeah. You're good. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. I will say the people that send hate tweets usually don't wait for permission. But <laughs> Touche. But if you were hanging on to that hate tweet, <laughs> just waiting for us to say it's okay, go ahead and send that hate tweet. But actually, most people have been very, uh, very constructive and helpful and friendly and, um, and uh, asked some really great questions. And we do try to answer them. Guys, uh, tell the people where to reach you. Mark, new Mark. Yes. How, how can folks get in touch with you? I'm going to give you my email address. Send me an email at mark at markorwall.com. That's M-A-R-K-O-R-W-O-L-L.com. I'm on Twitter at Orwall, so you can reach me there too. And I'm, Ma- I'm other Mark. I'm other Mark. Original Mark. <laughs> just, just boring. <laughs> Seen there, done that, Mark. I'm Mark J. Elwood on Twitter, and I have to say thank you to Honeystone for the podcast idea that they tweeted in because it is something we're going to work on. Send us more ideas like that, please. That was very mysterious. That's okay. the idea. Okay. You've got to tune in tune to hear in it. Tune in to hear it, or follow us on Twitter because then you would see it. Okay. Uh, you can find Lale. me on Twitter at Lale Arikoglu. A-R-I-K-O-G-L-U. Ryan. You can also find me on Twitter at Ryan R. Craigs. And I am at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.